HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I do my show on the Heritage Radio Network because I think it's important to talk about the impact of technology on our lives. I do my show to reach home cooks and help them do better. I love getting together with people in the industry. I like hosting my show because, to me, it's the stories about people and their relationship to food that help make the food more interesting and more delicious. Our hosts do their shows as a labor of love, but we still need your financial support in order to keep the lights on and keep the tape rolling. Please become a member today at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi there, I'm Greg from Kapow. Visit us at kapow.com to check out our unique collection of everyday reusable products designed to help you do more with less. C-U-P-P-O-W.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We, of course, are coming to you from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks. Today we are joined on the line by two experts in the field of fine chocolate, and we're going to discuss um, what fine chocolate means exactly and kind of the state of the nation of fine chocolate. I'd like to welcome both Pam Williams and Dan Pearson to the show. Hey, guys. Hi. Hello. Wonderful to have you on. So, um, of course, we could spend literally, uh, I think, a whole show going through your kind of CVs. But to give folks a little bit of context, um, Pam is the founder of uh, and Heritage Radio Network supporter of Ecole Chocolat, uh, a wonderful chocolate company. And, and in addition to being a founding member of the Fine Chocolate Industry Association and a founding member of the Heirloom Cacao Preservation Fund, Dan runs a chocolate company that is called Marignon Chocolate. Did I say that right? Uh, Marignon. 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 I was a Spanish and French, guys. You're really giving it to me from both sides. Um, and got his start in the chocolate business um, as an investment baker. We're going to hear a little bit more about that later in the show. But before we kind of tuck into our discussion, Pam, I was hoping you could give us a little bit of a primer on what we're talking about when we use the word fine chocolate. 
Absolutely. Um, there are different kinds of chocolates in the world, as we know, just, as, just like there's different kinds of wines. And those um, are usually delineated by flavor and uh, texture and quality. So there, there is a part of the huge, enormous chocolate business that relies on what they call fine flavor cacao. So many years, 10 years ago, when we started the Fine Chocolate Industry Association, we decided to use the word fine in um, a definition of who we were. So it's basically um, chocolatiers, chocolatier, if we want to be very French, uh, and chocolate makers who are using good quality, fine flavor beans, as opposed to um, the other part of the chocolate industry, which is basically um, more moderate or, or bulk cacao use. And if we were kind of going to compare the two by volume, um, you know, per your definition of the kind of fine chocolate space, how much of a percentage of the, the chocolate space are we talking about? We're talking a very, very tiny, tiny. Um, the, the actual fine flavored cacao that is left in the, in the world is 3 to 5%. You know, nobody's sure, but they think it's probably closer to, to 3 than, it, than 5 as the years go by. It gets less and less. So the people who are playing in that space, the chocolatiers and the, the chocolate makers, are probably, I don't know, Dan, what do you think, maybe 0.5% of the, the volume of the, the chocolate industry or 1%? Well, I think it's, 5% is a number I've heard, but it's a growing segment. At the same time, the segment is growing. The supply is endangered and, you know, endangered shrinking. So it's a it's an interesting paradox as one grows, the other shrinks, and that's kind of the challenge we have. Yeah, and I think that's the thing that we're hoping to explore um, in the next kind of 40 minutes that we'll get to spend together is, is you know, what are the kind of systems and in infrastructure and um, things in place to protect fine chocolate? And Dan, I love the story of how you got into the chocolate business so much. Uh, so you started out, you know, per my notes here that you were an investment baker um, doing some business in Peru and... Then you discovered a previously thought to be extinct type of chocolate. How did that happen? Well, you know, quite honestly, it was all accidental. I, I, I'd finished a deal, and in 2002 went to Peru uh, to visit an executive at the world's largest gold mine. Um, that led to us beginning to supply parts for big equipment. Then, and mines are very remote locations. Then we took over a contract to supply fruits and vegetables from the inland valleys of Peru. Well, then they said, would you like to supply tropical fruits? I said, you mean from the jungle? We were sourcing bananas in 2007. I'd never seen a cacao pot in my life. Uh, and, and they looked like a small American football. But we opened them, half the beans were white, which we found out was very rare. And in that aha moment, I reached out to the USDA genetics lab and said, I found these white beans. They said, take off some branches and send them to us, and we'll do the genetic testing. Well, they did, and they, I, he, he called me back and said, are you sitting down? I said, yes. He said, what you found went extinct 100 years ago in Ecuador. It was pure national. It was then the most popular chocolate in the world. 
but it got wiped out by diseases. And those were all brown, dark chocolate. What you found doesn't exist anywhere in the world. Well, as a fourth-generation entrepreneur, I <laughs> thought, gee, we, maybe we should get involved in this. Um, and so I came to the chocolate business. Pam has spent her career in it. I came there accidentally. I was sourcing bananas. Uh, and now that I've learned a lot about that, and then I found out about the Fine Chocolate Business Association, reached out, met Pam, got involved. Uh, and then as we looked at it more, we could see how in danger fine chocolate was. Because it's, anyway, that's how we got involved in it. Uh, But what really is happening is it's a small farm project because of diseases. In Africa, there are two or three million small farmers. Someone came up with a food, a chocolate variety that is disease resistant, heavily relied on, on fertilizer and insecticides, and is tasteless. And so the fight we're in with the heirloom cacao preservation is to preserve the rare quality chocolate and beans while the farmer has to make a living and he has a temptation to plant plantations of the tasteless but very productive cacao variety. Yeah, so I mean, not dissimilar you know, to the conversation we're seeing more broadly across the agricultural landscape where we're seeing you know, kind of a further and further reduction of, of biodiversity in the food supply. Now, you discover this chocolate. I love, I mean, how did it occur to you? I, mean, I don't know that it would occur to me to just call up the USDA and, and or that I would even know kind of where to start. I mean, did you just like hop on Google and were like finding out more about genetic testing for chocolate or... How did that happen where you, like, had someone to call and knew that that was even the right agency to call? Well, you know, this 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 example fulfills my own belief that there is no such thing as consequences. or There's no such thing as things happening accidentally. Uh, what happened to me is I, when we came back after seeing the white beans and we got back to Lima, my partner, my business partner, I Googled it and found out the white beans were very rare. And then it was the aha moment, and here were all the circumstances and consequences and accidents. I then looked in the, uh, on Google, and I said, gee, I should call. Uh, and there was one in Miami and one in, uh, uh, in Brooks, uh, in Beltsville, Maryland. So I called the B before I called the M. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and it just so happened the secretary was at lunch, and the lead scientist picked up the phone, Dr. Lyndall Meinhardt. And it was just that aha moment. I wonder what the genetics is. And so I started talking to him. And he said, gee, that's very rare. So, you know, I have a different perspective than Pam, which is I didn't know anything about chocolate. Uh, and the aha moment was I wonder what the genetics are. And that led to, my gosh, we now have clients for our, our beans and our chocolate in 23 countries because it was rare and it tasted great. And that led me to meeting Pam who was involved in a fine chocolate industry association. And she and I have worked shoulder to shoulder since 2009 trying to make people aware of the danger we have of losing fine chocolate. 
So, yeah, I mean, you know, Pam, you were part of the, you know, a founding member of the Heirloom Cacao Preservation Fund, which is also in in partnership or in collaboration with the USDA. And I thought that was so interesting. And I'm wondering kind of what's in it for the USDA? I mean, is it because the Americans are big chocolate consumers? I don't know that I'm aware of a lot of chocolate being grown or really any of significance within the United States. So how did that partnership kind of come about and like why why do they have a vested interest in, you know, cacao preservation? Right, right. Well, I, I can't speak for the USDA, but I can tell you what, what my thought, thought is on that. Uh, Lyndall, who um, uh, Dan has just referred to, was very excited uh, when we started first talking about this, Dan and Lyndall and I. He was the one that was very excited about the fact that, that the genome of cacao has, has been, been done. So they have that information. Most of the studies that the USDA and other scientists that look at the cacao industry along with other industries they look at have basically done lots and lots of research on disease and lots of research on increasing yield, but nobody had done anything on trying to match the DNA to flavor. Mm -hmm. So they're excited about the opportunity to take, which is what we're doing with the the heirloom cacao preservation um, in, in part, is so that we can get enough data as to what different types of chocolates, cacao, beans, taste like from the perspective of human, human mouths. You know, we have, we have nine uh, tasting panel members who all volunteer to let us use their mouths. And people always say, well, how did you pick these, these ten people or mm-hmm. nine people? And we say they had the oldest mouths in the industry. <laughs> you know, we wanted people who'd been tasting uh, cacao for a long period of time. And um, so they range, they range from, you know, 30 years to 15 years. But altogether, they, they have a lot of years of tasting. Because what Linda was excited about is that they have the opportunity to do the research that matches those two together, like, and so we do it backwards. Instead of looking at a cacao bean and saying, I wonder what it tastes like, we ask people, to farmers, to give us their beans, to submit their beans. We put those through the tasting process. And if the tasters say, this is a, a, a great flavor we should keep, it's not about a contest, this is better than the other one, it's that this is a, a, a great flavor that we want to save the biodiversity of. And so from there, then we do the genetic testing. And as we get more and more submissions and more and more tastings and more and more identifications going on with the USDA, the USDA will have data where they can really look at, take it even further. Like, say, for example, if everybody decides that, that Pure National, the DNA of Pure National, produces these particular flavors that we want 
you know, we want to still have for our children and our children's children, then the USDA can look at, okay, this is grown. We know these genetics are grown in this area in over here in, you know, Indonesia, and there's a small farm over in maybe Africa left from the colonial days, so on and so forth. Then they can see what difference chihuahua makes in the flavor as well. So they're looking at, at a long-term, the long-term study and research for them is the reason why, plus the fact that nobody had done that. Um, you know, it was kind of a hole in the middle of all this DNA testing they've been doing uh, and identification on cacao, but nobody had really looked at it from, well, does it taste good? Yeah, that it's so interesting to me, and I think it's like kind of brings to mind, you know, anytime that you're outsourcing your food supply, which for most of us is all the time, and with chocolate in particular, um, you know, you're really putting yourselves in the hands of someone, someone else to kind of make decisions for you. And everyone has kind of different priorities, whether it's growing something that's like easy and high volume to grow or, you know, located in an easy place to transport or access or with a skilled labor force. Um, but then you, you know, coming into the kind of culinary aspects of something, the flavor aspects of something, I do feel like somewhere along the line that as an important factor in our producing decisions has, has kind of waned in the aggregate. And Dan, I have to imagine that had you, you know, sent away the, the, the pure national that like thought to be extinct chocolate variety, um, and, and, you know, found out it was extinct, but if it hadn't tasted good, I can't imagine you still would have invested in the same way. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and it, it had been famous because it had unique flavors. It had, floral and it had uh, uh, fruit flavor to it. And the white beans, a white bean is a mutation caused by interbreeding in a very isolated location. That added a third flavor. But yes, that was exactly it. First we got the beans and then we sent them, we first got 100 pounds and we sent it to someone with a small machine uh, in Las Vegas. And he, he had, and he served all of the pastry chefs in Las Vegas. Well, the flavor started coming out and then the chocolate tasted wonderful and he started inviting all these pastry chefs in to taste it i mean i grew up on hershey bars and and you know Me now too. i know that you don't you only <laughs> have to put 11 percent chocolate in hershey bars to call it chocolate the rest is all sugar and so here are all these professionals around me raving about about how good it tasted well that really was the motivation behind me getting into the business you can tell a story and that'll get anyone to try something once but if it doesn't have a great flavor, they won't follow through on it. And I think all of us, as we, as we get into tasting great flavors, realize how unflavorful some of our food with a lack of diversity can become. Yeah, and I think I, you know, on the other end of that, I find myself more often not wondering how thing, something can be so expensive, but how it can be so inexpensive, especially when you're looking at chocolate and you're thinking about all the steps to get it from, you know, the tree to the bar. Um, so you, you know, you built your business, I think after, you know, essentially doing, um, some initial testing, the, the next step for you was building out kind of fermentation and drying facilities on site. Is that right? Yes, as we did. This is, if you visualize this, 
this canyon, you must cross a river in to get into it. It's The canyon's a triangle shape about 12 miles on the side. Uh, and because of that, when we got there, uh, their biggest crop was coffee, and coffee came in at the same time as cacao. So they would throw the cacao beans on the ground. Uh, uh, they never fermented them, and then they would sell them to big chocolate uh, for moisture content. Uh, and it was only until we started testing it, and we had to run a lot of tests because the white beans are very different to ferment. Well, then there wasn't a single fermenting box in the entire canyon, and there's probably about 1,000 to 1,200 farmers there. So we had to build a facility, and so we built a facility. We paid premium prices to them. Uh, what, what happened is that Ecuador had, had claimed Pure National for 500 years, but Ecuador and Peru have been in a war for over 160 years. So here suddenly is something that Peru has that Ecuador has been famous for for 500 years. So we then went to the Department of Ministry of Agriculture. They want us to keep it a secret, not tell anybody where it is. Of course, that adds to our marketing story. But so we have to have a facility there because none existed. Uh, my, my business partner, who was born and raised in California, went down there with me, lives there. Uh, runs the facility, works with the farmers, um, and it's very rewarding because we're paying more, we're expanding, and it's helping and improving the lives of the farmers, and that's very important to us. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I have to imagine that there's probably a really good book in there somewhere. <laughs> uh, drama and the intrigue and well so Pam I want to talk a little bit about you know so here we have Dan in this very specific example in this very specific place um, kind of talking a little bit about the industry on the ground for people who are farming cacao when you're looking at you know heirloom cacao producers are we talking primarily then about what types of things? I mean, I know from reading the website, we're looking at, you know, smaller scale farmers, but I'm wondering, you know, how, how small scale and can you grow fine chocolate at a large scale? Yes. Yeah, you can. Um, nobody has because, uh, well, no, I shouldn't say that. There are people that do it on a larger scale, uh, but there are, everybody's been chasing yield. Mm-hmm. and disease resistance. Sure. You know, the farmers are because they have to make a living. And so the farms that that have been still the traditional uh, trees that they've been growing for a long, long time are usually, not all, usually smaller farms, very, in some cases, very tiny farms, you know, of an acre or two acres or, or you know, a couple of hectares. And, you know, it's, it's because the big guys, the bigger farms, have realized that they needed to get out of that and into the more prosperous. One of the, the problems is in places like in South America and Central America is that most farmers sell their beans through um, a collection center. So you have all these different farmers in a region and they bring their beans to be to the collection center and get paid really by the collection center who then sells them on to the brokers. And a lot of times you'll have a farmer in who still has his traditional um, cacao trees and you have a farmer who's gone to, to a newer hybrid. And what happens is when they come into the 
the uh, collection center, they're all put together. There's no, you know, there hasn't been a lot, except for in the last 10 to 15 years, there hasn't been a, a, a real look at um, smaller, fine flavor cacao farmers. Mm-hmm. You know, they nobody's gone after them. The the big multinationals obviously don't have the wherewithal to do that. The um, the other chocolate manufacturers, such as uh, Guitard in in uh, the U.S. and Valrona and Falkland um, in Europe, have gone been looking, you know, for better quality cacao for a long a long time. But there are very few in the industry who have done that. And so there just, there wasn't really, the farmer had no market other than the collection center. We hope to change that. Yeah. We hope to, to put the, the farmer in touch directly with the, the chocolate maker. That makes a lot of sense. We are, are going to take a quick break to hear uh, from our sponsor. And when we come back, um, I want to talk a little bit more about the uh, biodiversity on site and how that relationship um, is interesting with when we're looking at these smaller producers. You, of course, are listening to the Farm Report, and we'll be right back. Hang tight. Americans throw away 58 billion disposable cups every year. A lot of those cups will still be around long after you're dead. Kind of dark, I know, but I'm Greg from Kapow, and we decided to do something about it. We created the only glass travel mug that's 100% U.S. made. You can check it out alongside our complete line of everyday reusables at kapow.com, C-U-P-P-O-W.com. Okay, we are back. We are talking chocolate today on the Farm Report. We are on the line with Pam Williams of Aquila Chocolat and Dan Pearsons from Marignon Chocolat. And we were talking a little bit before the break um, about the size of farmers, the size of producers of fine chocolate. But one of the other things that I think is so interesting is this other, I think you can make the assumption that these smaller producers are also operating in areas of very kind of high biodiversity. That is, there's a lot of different things growing in or around the the chocolate. So you're having these other kind of natural barriers to disease or pests. Um, is that right, Pam? Did I characterize that correctly? Um, it just depends on on the regions. Yes, that that can be a case. Like in in Dan's case, uh, the valley um, was basically hard to get to and out in the middle of nowhere. So there there wasn't lo- a lot of um, pressure on the cacao farmers who were doing both coffee and cacao to um, make any changes. For them, it was Dan. I think I'm right with this. It was just a side product. That they were doing. Let me speak to that a moment. Uh, what, yes, biodiversity is that's what they that's what they have. We haven't got a single farm that doesn't have more than five or six crops growing, 
it's kind of like my great-grandparents back in Indiana, that they had four or five different crops because they didn't want to have one crop because prices may change within them. Now, one thing I have found there is that they couldn't get uh, fine chocolate has has real issues with getting too big a plantation because all the diseases are airborne. Hmm. Now, in this canyon, they don't really have that problem. But mo- most of the farms are no bigger than two or three acres uh, planted in cacao. But then they have grapefruit, and they have and they have coffee, and they have lemons, and they have all the other kinds of crops. So they don't have a lot of disease issues. But the people, and I can speak to Peru, but the people who've tried to make bigger plantations with fine chocolate, they're very disease, uh, you know, diseases strike them easily, uh, is one of the issues that we have as opposed to this new hybrid that you can plant plantations. It has no flavor, but it is disease resistant. So, yes, in the all, only biodiversity there. Uh, someone's working on a documentary that came down with us. Uh, in April, and they were shocked to see that there was still a place that had all this diversity. But of course, that's rare anymore because of industrial farming. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you think about it in a very practical way, you know, you're, you get up in the morning, you're on your farm, it's much easier to you know, manage and harvest in some ways uh, a very kind of expansive and like orderly operation because you can build, you know, mechanized equipment for it and and things are laid out in a very kind of organized way. But I think that doesn't always translate into the thing that we're, I think, most interested uh, in here at the Heritage Radio Network. And I think that you guys are is is the flavor components. I mean, how much do does uh, mechanization or use of um, other types of equipment come into play in the chocolate space. I mean, I, I'm assuming we're not, you know, making comparisons to, you know, the cornfields of your youth, Dan, and the giant, you know, 50-row combines. But when we think about, you know, cost to the consumer, cost to chocolate makers, obviously, you know, labor and scale and volume are all kind of part of what drive that cost up or down. So, what are the you know what are the like main ways that things become more efficient outside of just varieties that produce more? I don't know, Pam, if maybe you want to jump in there. Well, I think one of the things that's interesting is that uh, cacao needs post-harvest processes. There are certain processes that have to be done before the dried beans can be shipped to the chocolate maker. In Dan's case, he does it on site. In most cases, the farmers do those, those processes themselves. For example, let's say you're growing bananas. So you have your banana um, trees in the, in the farm. You watch the bananas grow. You may have to bag them for insects and, and uh, that kind of a thing, fertilize, possibly do pesticides, I don't know a lot about bananas, but that's pretty much it. And when they're ripe, you cut them off, take them to the um, distribution center where they're washed and packaged and they're sent out. With cacao, the first, the first problem you run up against, besides um, knowing when the, the uh, cacao pods are ripe, is basically they're, they're cut off the tree by hand. 
And that still is the best way and pretty much the only way that anybody is harvesting cacao. So that means there's no real mechanization that can happen in that part of the, the, the cycle. No matter what size the farm is or where it's located, no. more or less. No. Okay. No. Yes, that's um, true. If you're, if you're a smart farmer, you have learned that you prune your, your trees to uh, let a little more light into the fruit, plus to um, encourage the fruit to grow lower down on the tree, so on and so forth, to help with the harvesting process. But the harvesting process is basically by hand. Then you have to ferment the beans. Uh, for bulk beans, a lot of times they'll skip that. They'll just take them right to drying, and off they go. But to bring out the best flavors of whatever cacao you have, it doesn't matter the type, you can, by treating it well during the fermentation process, you give the bean the best um, chance at having, having its great flavors. So there is this fermentation process that has to go on. And that is a cost to the farmer because that can take five, seven days for that fermentation to happen. Mm -hmm. Then the next step is once you've, you've fermented them, you take them out and you dry them. And that, again, takes anywhere, takes a few days to get them dry depending on your, your um where where you are, if you're in a in a really wet uh, climate, you have to build drying sheds to be able to dry, because um, you just don't have enough sun during the day to to uh, uh, do that. And if if they get wet, you end up with mold problems. So before you can actually bag up your crop and sell it to someone, you have to go through these other laborious um, types of processes. Uh, can they be mechanized? The, the most mechanization I have seen is um, in, a, in a farm in Costa Rica, he had taken uh, banana cables that they use with bananas um, where they run cables down the, the um, uh, each row of trees and in the, in the banana business, they have hooks on them, and they just hook the, the banana bunches over there, and then they pull it up through the cables at the end of the day to the road, and it's taken from there. And what he ended up doing is putting, he cut barrels in half and attached them to the, the cable, ran those down, and so as, as the guys were harvesting, they were able to not have to carry all the pods, which are heavy, mm -hmm. out to the road. They could put them on that, and at the end of the day, they, they pulled them out. And I did see that same farm had a, had a cracker, a mechanized cracker of the pods to open the pods um, that he had, had cobbled together from another piece of equipment. But that's pretty much it. Dan, have you seen any other mechanisms? being used, and you look at other farms? Well, the thing, the thing that, that happens with us is there are all these small farmers, and we, you know, there, were no one, there was no one fermenting there. Most, most small farmers uh, don't ferment themselves. They either sell it to a, a nonprofit co-op that does it, because it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to do 
on an individual farm with four or five crops. But it's in, in our case, the, everyone has the same thing. There are all these tiny farms, and you have to go out. We pick up the beans wet, uh, and we transport them to our center. And because the steps are complicated, it's very, very hard to mechanize. We have not seen it. I mean, we, labor is still cheaper than mechanization. But when you bring these beans in, you're putting them in a fermenting box that, that holds about three or 400 pounds of beans. Uh, and then it's in that box for five to seven days. You have to churn them every day so the temperatures are the same. And it's very difficult to mechanize that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't. Uh, it's still cheaper to use labor. And we hire from the local community. We pay premium prices. But it's not an industry that lends itself to mechanization because most farms are, you know, they're not on the freeway. Right. Uh, they're, they're in remote locations. And picking them up, in our case, we don't have a single paved road in the canyon, so we are literally picking them up in trucks and motorcycles, wet, and then bringing them in. So far, I haven't seen a real advancement in mechanization because so many tiny farmers at so many remote locations, it doesn't have, it, it has not lent itself to mechanization yet. Right. So even if you're looking at... Um a, a you know like a larger plantation style the benefits are not the benefit like the the benefits if we're thinking about volume of production are coming from the genetics of the bean primarily not the kind of harvesting or for, not not on the like post harvest end is that right well, see the thing is so now in my experience and I can only really talk about Peru yeah. Yeah. it's twice the size of Texas so it's a very big place but in Peru there are no plantations because of the airborne diseases. The okay. only plantations are this hybrid, which is called CCN51. They can mechanize the planting. They can mechanize the harvesting because it's a, the typical plantation. Uh, lots of fertilizers. The firm, farmers get hooked on having used a lot of fertilizers, a lot of pesticides. But that chocolate is going to industrial chocolate. Those are the Hershey bars we right. all grew up on. Right. Uh, but no, when you have small farms and you have to plant other crops to protect them because of disease, very difficult to mechanize. So, yeah, so that was, uh, yeah, I guess, Pam, and maybe if you want to add to that point, my question was like, in, so when we're talking about kind of smaller scale fine chocolate producers, you're not, you're not seeing any opportunities for that, for that type of like a mechanization, but it is something that is done, um, for for bean growers in a more kind of commodity destination chocolate if that does that make sense yeah it and i i think the processes are are pretty much the same where where you it's all based on labor yeah uh, where you can get some um if you're really high volume where you can get get some some scale to be able to to reduce your labor costs are in skipping the fermentation totally, which some people do for, for bulk commodity uh, cacao. Um, you can also um, develop your fermentation boxes to be easier to, to use. Uh, they use a step method where you put the beans up at the, the top and um, then leave them there to do part of their fermentation, then you open that box and everything tumbles down into the next box 
on the next step lower, giving it because you want to aerate it. Right. And that's part of I did, I did have a conversation with Ed Seguine, who has um, been in the, the chocolate business forever. And I said to him, you know, it's, couldn't we develop for fermentation a, a, some kind of, of machine like they use in the, in the wine industry with a, you know, a, uh, their fermentation, an accepted kind of practice where the, the machine would do the tumbling and do the, the whatever. And he said, yes, that's possible to do that. He said, but it's just way, 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 way too expensive to, for it to be of any value to the, the small farmers that make up the, the fine cacao end of the business. That makes sense. And I guess the reason I belabor this point is because I want to use the last um, you know, couple of minutes that we have here today to talk a little bit about you know, cost as we're experiencing it on the consumer end. So, you know, I can go to, you know, my bodega on the corner here in New York City and buy a Hershey bar for somewhere, you know, around a dollar, a dollar twenty-five, a dollar forty, depending on the mood of my bodega guy that day. Um, but if I am in the market for a kind of fine chocolate bar, you can be looking at, you know, upwards of fourteen, fifteen dollars. And obviously, um, you know, you're going to have the exterior it's aesthetics of these bars, um, you know, beautiful paper, lovely font, um, like the, the kind of signatures and prematures of, um, you know, a high value product that you're going to see. But but really the difference in these chocolates is is happening, you know, not on the exterior primarily, but on the on the interior. And it seems like every step of the way here um it's just the costs are like higher across the board in all these spaces. So what do we, I mean, I guess I feel like the fine chocolate world has not done a great job at explaining to consumers why things can cost so much and so little at the same time. So what should we be telling folks? Like what are the kind of talking points for like farm report listeners who are, who are out there and want to sit down and like feel empowered to enjoy their $14 bar of chocolate um, and share that information in, in a, a more simple way. Cause not everybody is going to dedicate their life to chocolate as you guys have. Um, what are the kind of easy takeaways and tools we should be giving folks to understand these differences? Well, may I address that? If you look at the whole value chain, the, we, with fine chocolate, our beans, we are working very hard to ferment them to protect the flavor. But then once it comes to, to the manufacturer, you can go, and I've seen them, Hershey has 100-ton machines. They take the temperature way up. They burn out any kind of flavor that may have been there. They then add artificial flavors, uh, and you have an end bar. So when you're doing 100 tons at a time. Uh, what does that even look like, 100 tons of chocolate beans? Holy cow. Well, but you see, they're buying from Africa. They probably haven't even fermented those beans. They're paying way below what prices normally should be paid. Uh, and then they're making these huge machines, and all the flavor you taste are artificially added. In our case, we are taking the time and effort to ferment them. And then when they come over here, the machinery probably isn't doing more than one or two tons at a time. 
they roast at low temperatures to be able to protect those flavors. And when you get that expensive bar, it is a natural flavor. There's no thing, nothing added in there as a preservative. Nothing is added in there as an artificial flavor. You're getting the real thing. It's like the two, the in California, which is now the three buck chuck. A wine. Mm-hmm. I've been to those places, and after watching how it's made, I'd never drink it. Right. Well, it's uh, kind because of because it's these giant machines with artificial flavors added to it. Yeah, that I like. Think when you look at a, a package of Kraft Singles, and it says that it's not cheese, but it's cheese food. So, right. <laughs> so kind of a Hershey's bar is not chocolate, but it's like chocolate food. It's like it's some amalgamation of ingredients with chocolate flavoring added at the end in some way. Let me give you an example. You you can call chocolate chocolate in the United States if it has eleven percent chocolate in it. Wow. Okay. So I'm, the sugar yeah. and artificial flavors. Where if you're buying fine chocolate, it tells you exactly how much of that is chocolate. And usually all that is added besides that is sugar. Um, Pam, I am going to let you have the last word here, um, you know, up on your cho- chocolate soapbox. Give, give us the gospel. What should we be doing out here? I, I think, number one, what people have to do, what us consumers and chocolate lovers have to do, is taste your chocolate. In other words, give your – we're in a really great – great place right now where people care about where their chocolate came from and their food in general obviously they care about the flavor that they're giving themselves and their family and i think that that regardless of the price if you taste a chocolate bar that you love and you look at the website of the chocolate manufacturer and get their story and understand what they're doing, then it's all good. Um, you know, give give the industry that opportunity to tantalize your taste buds. That's the, that's really, I teach that in my classes. That's the only way you learn how to discern better or, you know, not so good flavor is to train your, your taste buds to recognize something that tastes wonderful. So listeners, I have a challenge for you. Get out there. Take uh, you know, take that Friday night cocktail money and invest it in a handful of chocolate bars. <laughs> then maybe seal yourself, you know, in a dark room, close your eyes, put a square in your mouth and kind of let some magic happen. You got it. <laughs> taste it rather than eat it. Yeah. Well, um, Pam and Dan, I hope that we will have you guys back again soon. I know there's tons more that we did not get to, but I really, I learned so much. I really appreciate you guys taking some time to share your knowledge and experience with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I will have um, links to the websites for these guys, uh, links to the um, Heirloom Cacao Preservation Fund, all the good stuff uh, on the farm page uh, website, which is www.heritageradionetwork.org. Just click uh, the farm report and we'll put all those info, all those pieces of information there because we're dealing with the French and the Spanish. And I want you guys to, to come on and visit and, and definitely lots more to learn. 
Thank you guys again so much. Thanks for tuning in. I am your host, Aaron Fairbanks. You can find me at Aaron underscore Fairbanks on Instagram, Twitter, or Snapchat. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. It really helps us know how to get better and helps other people find us. And of course, we are a member-supported nonprofit radio station. So if you like what you hear, visit www.heritageradionetwork.org. Click that beating heart and become a member today. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.
Uh, yeah. Alright. You don't have to wear them the whole time if you don't want them. No, I'll just stick it on. It's okay, it's okay. I just listen. Do I hear anything when I'm listening, when I'm talking? Yourself. Yeah, right. I think that's a good idea. And then I could say, oops. You test that for me? Okay. Can you hear me now? Sounds good. Okay. Now we're rolling whenever you're ready. Okay. Well, thanks, guys. Today I'm talking about feeding the hungry. We've seen them all on the streets begging for money. However, some people don't want to give them money because it might be spent on drugs, alcohol, other vices. So they offer them food instead. The beggars usually want money, and now they have your food, which may be different than what they had wanted to eat. Or they can eat your food that you gave them, but they'll probably throw it away. And they don't have the money they were asking for. So what do donors do? Well, donors still want a little more control where their money is is being spent. But think about it. When you, when you served a meal in a restaurant and you tip the server, do you have any control over where they spend that tip? How do you know that it isn't going to be used to party like it's 1999? One alternative is you can donate money to a charity. But do you know what becomes of your donation? Some of the hunger charities do a good job. That means they use most of the donations, between 75 and 90%, to get food to the people who need it. But be aware, there are many charities that don't spend most of the money raised on feeding the hungry. Instead, they have big salaries and expense accounts. In New York City, some of the best charities are Action Against Hunger. They work to eliminate hunger, especially during and after emergency situations due to conflicts or natural disasters. Well, there's City Harvest. They're working on ending hunger through food rescue and redistribution. And there's Food Bank for NYC. They work to end hunger by organizing food, information, and support for community survival and dignity. Nationally, we all know there's Meals on Wheels. They do a good job of empowering local community programs to improve the health and quality of the lives of the seniors so that no one is left hungry or isolated. If you still want to give money to food, give money or food to the street beggars, did you know that in some cities it's illegal? The theory is that it is sanctioning homelessness, and it takes funds and food away from soup kitchens and other charities that work to feed the hungry. Restaurateurs have been feeding the homeless for years, and now some of them are being fined for doing that. Finally, the street recipients of your donations can be beaten, harassed, and robbed because they now have food or money. So what can you do if you're so inclined to help? Well, you can give money or gift cards to hunger organizations. It's a tax deduction. You can separate or donate your recyclables, which is really great for the environment. You can donate food to the food bank, which also could be a tax deduction. You can volunteer at the hunger programs, which is a good way to give back to your community. You can recruit schools and businesses to support food drives or fundraisers. You can employ the homeless. We've all seen the signs. We will work for food. Or finally, you can work with your local politicians and get programs passed that could work in your community. I don't know. Feeding the people on the streets, maybe it's not my job. Thank you. Cool. You want to hear any of that back, or you want to run through it one more time? Are you not wearing headphones? (laughs) 